You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Mountain City Church. In this series, The Gospel of Luke, Jesus for All, we walk through Luke's account of the life and ministry of Christ. All right, good morning, everybody. My name is Joe. I'm a member here and I have the wonderful pleasure of being one of the elders. Um, Just to give you a heads up, today is a busy day. Um, So we might uh, go over just a little bit of our 12 o'clock usual stopping time, but it's all good. Um, God is doing some wonderful things and has given us an opportunity to be part of some wonderful things. And today's one of those busy days where um, we have a little bit of business to do at the end. We have some wonderful guests from down at Calvary Christian Academy that's going to be sharing about their mission trip here at the end of the service. Um, So it's it's a good day. God's um, always good. And it's it's wonderful to see everybody in the house of the Lord today. Let me pray before we dive in. Um, And then if you have your Bibles, you can open up to Luke uh, chapter 12, 13. That's where we're going to be today as we continue to walk through the book of Luke. So we're just taking what's coming next um, within our uh, study of the book of Luke. So let me pray for us in We'll dive in. Father, we thank you again for this day. Thank you for the opportunity to worship. uh, Lord, just thank you that we could come together and and praise you for all that you have done for us, Father. Lord, again, as Nate reminded us, that yes, there is an aspect of repentance where we need to see just how far we are from God. But if we are in Christ... That condemnation's gone. So that repentance leads to joy. Just as it would the first time or the millionth time. And Lord, I pray as we walk through what Jesus says here, that we will see that. That you will help me communicate well. That, Lord, that your spirit will will work in all of our hearts. Lord, to change us and mold us to be more like Jesus. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. So over the last couple of weeks, I know some of you are guests and you're just jumping into our study of time together. Teaches us, uh, Jesus has been teaching us about his return. right? Luke uh, 1240, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And as we've been looking at the second coming of Jesus or when Jesus is coming back, we're not focusing on when. I know that the church gets tripped up many times on focusing and trying to figure out when. We don't know. Jesus later on even says he doesn't know when that's happening. But the point of Jesus talking about this is not for us to figure out when it's going to happen, but it's figuring out how will he find us on that day? How will he find you on that day when he breaks the skies and comes? And that's the whole point of, of looking at this. And then Jesus says something, that we are to be ready for his return. Verse 35 in chapter 12 says, stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. This, this idea that you're always ready. Then he said, I came to cast fire on earth. And with that, we're already kindled, decided that he's, when he comes, he's going to judge now, I know that we don't like talking about judgment, and we think that, oh, that's the, the God of the Old Testament. That's not the God of the New Testament. God of the New Testament just love. Well, that's just a heresy. That's not true. It's, he is both. He is both, and he's wonderfully both. And last week we looked at how we look at judgment and, and how it could be a really good thing, and it's a really good thing to understand. But the good news is, Yes, he is coming one day. He is bringing fire. He is bringing judgment. But as he taught us last week, this wonderful reminder 
that he has a baptism to be baptized with. And how great was his distress until it was accomplished. See, what Jesus was doing as he's sitting around talking to his disciples and teaching all these people, he's looking to the cross. He's looking to the cross and saying, hey, yes, judgment's coming, fire's coming, but I'm about to go do something that helps you, that saves you. That's what we've been singing about all morning long. Jesus then asked this question. Do you think that I've come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. And and what he's trying to point out here and what he's trying to say here is everybody has to make a decision about who he is and what he teaches. Every human being has to decide that because he was God in the flesh. As C.S. Lewis famously said, everyone has has to look at him. He's either a liar, a lunatic, or he is Lord. And every person on planet earth, because of this second coming, because of his judgment yet to come, they have to decide what they're going to do with Jesus. You can't straddle the line. And you certainly can't make a Jesus or a God made in your own image, so therefore you get to pick and choose what you like about what the Word of God says. We can't do that either. And then he goes on and says that we should really see the signs. Again, this is in the context. He's teaching those people. He's, he's looking at the signs, that like the Messiah has come, and he's also pointing to the cross. But for us, on the other side of the resurrection, we have all kinds of signs. We have the resurrection. And, and believe it or not, that one of the biggest signs is the person sitting next to you that is in Christ. The 2,000 years ago, this message of the gospel, of what Jesus has done, has changed hearts. And then as they change hearts, that person tells somebody. And as that heart is changed, it tells somebody. And then we're all sitting here 2,000 years later, worshiping God because of what the gospel says and what the Holy Spirit does with the gospel. And that is just truly remarkable. And that is a wonderful sign for us to see that Jesus is exactly who he says he is. So now, he's bringing this teaching that, that we've been sitting under for the, the last three or four weeks here at, at Mountain City as he's been teaching all these different things. This is all one setting. If you get rid of all our numbers and, and all our chapters and things like that, if you just read it and keep reading it, you'll see this is all one setting. So he's bringing this all to a crescendo. And, and we see it, again, if we ignore these chapters and verse marks, we're just reading what the Word says. He's pronounced woes to lawyers and Pharisees, declaring them hypocrites. He told us, do not fear man, but fear God. He's reordered our fears. He said, do not covet. Remember, we talked about that. He says, do not be anxious. Jesus has masterfully pricked the hearts of those who have ears to ear. He did that for the people around him, and he's done that with us over the last three or four weeks. And what is he doing as he pricks their hearts? He's showing them their sin. He's showing them their sin. And that is a good thing to be shown your sin. Therefore, you can repent and the Holy Spirit can help you. You can apply the gospel to it and then you rejoice. He's showing them who he is and what he has come to do. He is showing them the terrible situation that their sin has put them in. Judgment is coming before the fire falls where we go and where we pick up the, at the end of chapter 12 and verse 57 we must make sure we have a right relationship with God it's coming do you have that right relationship with God 
And Jesus says we must do this now before it is too late. And here we pick up his teaching in verse 57 of chapter 12. And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way. Lest he drag you to the judge and the judge hand you over to the officer and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. You're not getting out unless you pay the cost. Now, this is a, a very familiar idea because we have our court systems. And, and we understand that, that, you know, whenever we're innocent and we know we're innocent and we're 1,000% sure that we're innocent, we want that trial, right? We want to go through the trial because so we can show that our innocence to everybody, but when we're guilty, and we know that we're guilty, and we know that there's no defense, sometimes it's better to settle out of court. And this is kind of the picture that Jesus is drawing here. Yes, I know we're bringing you know, the, our modern things, and, and we're looking at it in that way. But this is, this is kind of the principle that what Jesus is trying to show them. It's like, look, I've showed you your sin in many different ways. For the, these group of people that's around him and his disciples. He says, now you, the judgment is coming, and there's a way to get out of it. There's a way to settle your debt. And we all have debt, which he's going to really dig into here in a little bit, that, that we're all, we all have debt. And of course, the court that Jesus has pointed us to is the day he will judge the world. Jesus has given us friendly legal advice that we need to settle our case with God before it is too late. And the first thing we need to do and understand in selling our case begins with admitting that we are guilty. You know, Jesus said this is those that are poor in spirit, that they truly understand that they're separated from God, that they truly understand how wide that gap is. It's just not a little gap. Like, I'm a, I'm a really good person that does these, that have these little hiccups. No. If you read the Bible, and, and I know that's sometimes why many people don't like reading the Bible, because as the word, word acts like a, a scalpel into your heart, it shows you your sin. But we always got to keep in, in remembering, always remember, if you are in Christ, there is no condemnation. So it's not heap, heap, you know, things on you to make you feel bad. No, it's Oh, okay, let me repent. Let me see how the gospel helps me with this. See how Jesus has taken care of that. And as we do that, joy is restored. And we live this flourishing life that, that God has for those that are his children. So unless we see how sinful we are, we'll never know how much we need to get right with God which is exactly where Jesus goes next. He challenges our thinking about our guilt and also gives us the way out. He challenges our thinking about guilt, but he's giving us a way out. Remember, it, you know, we, we've spread this out over many weeks and sometimes it's hard to keep it all together. But if you just sat down and read this, maybe it'd be a good exercise, you know, sometime this week to sit down and read this whole chunk of, of teaching, beginning with the woes, and just see how it all molds together and, and how he's building to this crescendo. He's like, I put you in the hole, but now I'm going to show you how to get out. I've shown you your sin. You can't escape it. But there's a way out. There's a way out. But the first thing we got to see, and the first thing that I usually ask in any of our elder interviews, is when, what day did you know that you were separated from God? 
Don't want to hear about all your church path. What day did you know you were separated from God? That you sinned against a holy God? When was that day? And then tell me with the good news of what Christ has done for you. So he's challenging our thinking about our guilt and also gives us the way out. Luke 13, we're changing, going into chapter 13. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Were those 18 on whom the tower in Shalom fell and killed them? Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So it's real real easy as we're looking at this passage, what the main topic is, right? It's repentance. We've been talking about it since we kicked off the whole service. So let's talk about the two events, and then we'll talk about the solution. Let's talk about just shortly about the two events, and then we'll talk about the solution. There's a terrible atrocity, and then there's a tragic accident. That's the two events that Jesus is talking about here. This is the only place in the Bible that both of these events are mentioned. It's the only place that they're mentioned. The terrible atrocity is Luke 13.1. There was some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. So apparently a group of Galileans had been offering animal sacrifices. Presumably they had done this in the temple at Jerusalem and probably during the Passover. That's usually when they would do these types of things. While they were engaged in this religious act of worship to the one true God, the Galileans were viciously murdered by soldiers under government of Pontius Pilate. Now this is not the first time Pilate has done this. That he's massacred people like this. So in this particular massacre, the blood of the victims mingled with the blood of their sacrifices, turning their sacrifice into a sacrilege. It means it's no longer a valid sacrifice because the bloods have been mingled. And there, people around them, or whoever asked this, is saying, okay, who was worse off? These Galileans or other Galileans? That's the question. Man, sometimes we do that. Sometimes when we're not looking vertically and we look to our left or our right to justify yourself, that's exactly what we're doing. This is the atrocity. The tragedy accident seemed to be some kind of accident. This tower fell on people, like a construction accident. The tower fell and it killed 18 people. Jesus uses both events to ask the same question to those he is teaching. He asked the same question to them, and he asked the same question to us. Do you think that those Galileans who perished in the massacre or those who died in the accident were worse offenders than you? In other words, are you, are, do we say that, okay, that bad thing happened to that person because they're worse sinners than me? That's a dangerous place to be because what we're doing is we're justifying ourselves to the left and to the right instead of before God. In other words, we're saying, oh, we... You know, I I must be better than that person because this tragedy didn't happen to me. That's kind of the hard issue that he's trying to dig at here. Whenever something terrible happens to someone, sometimes people say that it must be the person's own fault. Bad things only happen to bad people, right? That's the theology, that's the idea behind it. This theology of sin and suffering was especially... um, it was very, really common in ancient Israel. 
One commentator put it this way. At that time, it was a generally accepted notion that whenever calamities visited people, this was a proof that they were exceptionally sinful, and that for this reason God allowed them to be overtaken by such disasters. I mean, we can see this all through Scripture, this idea of being brought up, right? Think of Job's wonderful friends, <laughs> right? They, they, they were telling th- Job, you've got to search again. It must be something you've done wrong, even though the Bible declares him that he was a righteous man. It must be something that you've done wrong. What about, think about the man born blind. What did they ask Jesus? Who sinned, him or his parents, right? Jesus is asking this to get at the heart issue that prevents us from stepping into the solution. The solution for the fire that will fall, the solution to settling our account, the solution being unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Do we see his, his point here? He's saying, no, they're, they're not worse sinners. We all deserve to have towers falling on us. Repent, or you will likewise perish. Repent, or you will likewise perish. This means Jesus assumes something very different than what we assume. And unfortunately, much of that assumption has been brought about by really bad reading of the Bible and some really bad teaching of of who man is according to the Bible. There's something off in our philosophy of suffering. It can be summed up in a book title. Why do bad things happen to good people? There's a massive assumption there. The massive assumption is that there's good people, according to what God says. There's a philosophical assumption that is never addressed in in that book. The assumption that somehow we have come to expect that God owes us all a good life. That he owes us a good life. So that whenever tragedy happens to some, somewhere else, we're like, oh, well, what did those people do to deserve it? Like, we have this assumption and this idea that we deserve a good life. And unfortunately, it's been propagated by people that love making money by standing behind a pulpit and pretending that they're preaching the word of God and speaking to your flesh so that more people come and put more money in the coffers. Because that's what's happening. And that's what they do. And they're making people twice the child of hell that they were before they walked through the door. Because they won't call them to repentance. They won't point out their sin. They, they give you phrases like, have your best life now. Well, that is literally impossible because I live in a fallen world with fallen flesh. But one day I will have my best life. And that's when I'm glorified and living in the new heavens and the new earth. It's sad. And I think the saddest part about it all is the biggest export of Christianity for the United States is that exact gospel to the world. And it's sad. It's sad. Our idea that God deserved, that we deserve God to give us this wonderful, comfortable life. Hard-pressed to find it in the Bible. However, if you are in Christ, 
you can walk through the misery. <laughs> Although I'm in the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me. It really changes when you have a big God theology that makes you and allows you and helps you to walk through suffering. To walk through times when things aren't going to go right. Because if you think that everything in your life is going to go good, you're wrong. It just won't happen. But if you have a Savior who is holding on to you, you're not trying to hold on to him. He is holding you and he's keeping you. You can walk, right? As all the bombs are falling and, and life's falling apart, God's got you. You know, we, we sing a song that, that says, what can death do but bring me closer and faster to be with my Lord and Savior? Is that how we look at our suffering as we walk on this earth? He does not owe us all a good life. Jesus does not assume that at all. The question should not be, why does God allow so much suffering? The question should be, why does God allow so little? Why does he allow so little? Jesus does not work from that assumption. Jesus assumes that we are all lost sinners. Jesus has a correct anthropology, and he knows the heart of all humans. Romans 3, 10 through 12, this is Paul speaking. And where did Paul get his gospel? In Galatians, Paul says that for three years, Jesus, he taught him the gospel. That's in Galatians 1. But in Romans 3, 10 through 12, Paul says this, that is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. That's what the Word of God says. And the main reason for that is every human is born declaring, I am the master of my fate, and I am the, the, the captain, the king on the throne of my own soul. That's what the fall has done. That's what Adam's sin has done. This is what we are born into. This is our default. This is our default right here. I am the master of my fate, and I am the captain of my soul. I am the king on my own throne. That is our default until God intervenes with the gospel and the Holy Spirit and changes our hearts. That is our default. What did Tim read for us this morning? Psalm 51.5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. This is the anthropology. This is who we are without Christ. And if you stop and think about it, if we think, if God created us, if there's a creator God who we owe him everything, he doesn't owe us anything. We owe him everything. Somehow we've got that flipped around. Like that, that we're the gods and he's at our beck and call. Almost like a genie in a bottle. No. He's the creator God. He made everything. We owe him everything. We owe him first place in our life. But often we don't put him first place. We put ourselves in first place. We put things of this world in first place. Again, we all deserve to have towers fall on us. Unless we truly see this, then we will never step into the solution. 
we will never go there. We'll never step into that solution. Yeah, we might, you know, go sideways and, and, and ask Jesus into our heart to have a better life. But we're not on our face before God saying, I am a wretched sinner. Like we heard David walk through as Tim read the Psalms and say, please forgive me. Please have mercy on me. It's a big difference. And man, there is so much joy on the other end. Because whenever you're just coming to Jesus to get a better life, well, that's just going to go up and down and up and down and up and down. But if you know that you are saved from your sin and just how much he saved you from, oh, there is great joy. There is great joy. There is such a wonderful life to be had. Again, we will never step into the solution unless you repent you will likewise perish. This is Jesus' point. Repentance can only begin when we see our true condition before a holy God. So then, what is repentance? Well, repentance involves, as something that we talk about here quite often, is all three parts of the inner man, right? Our thinking, our emotions, our feelings, our will, and then also our volition, our actions. And we can think of them, I found this in R.C. Sproul's, I think, um, three, uh, three C's of confession, of, of repentance. Confession is an intellectual aspect of repentance. We know in our minds that we have sinned. Like we, we know it. We see it, we know it. And intellect comes back whenever we're preaching the gospel to ourselves at the back end of this. Because so much of, of our Bible is circular, which we will see. Contrition is the emotional aspect of repentance. We feel in our hearts that we have sinned. We know it. We feel it. And and thankfully, God is not, he is a loving and gracious God that whenever we come to faith, he doesn't say, okay, Joe, here's all your sins, which would crush me. He just kind of reveals them one at a time and one at a time and as I work on them, as I progress through sanctification. But it's this idea that that we know in our hearts that we have sinned. And the third C is change is the volition aspect of repentance. We resolve in our wills that we will go and sin no more. We will go and sin no more. The feeling most associated with repentance in Scripture is that of remorse, regret, and a sense of sorrow for having acted in a particular way. We see this in Psalm 51.4. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in the words and blameless in your judgment. Which leads us to cry out for mercy in Psalm 51.1. That's how he begins it. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. This only comes about when you change your mind about sin. And the only way that we can kind of change our minds about sin is if we are reading the Word of God that shows us our sin and shows us what Christ has done for that. That is the core, the essence of the word repentance, is to change one's mind. Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Real practical, you go from seeing that lying is not a way to get what you want, but is a sin against God which grieves and dishonors him. It grieves and dishonors the creator 
of the universe. When we know that, when we see that, when we understand that, when we feel or think that we change our actions and we stop lying, that's repentance. And there's greater joy because now we're not sinning. Which leads us to Luther's point, right? The first thesis that he nails to the Wittenberg Lord, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ had repent, he called for the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. It's one of repentance. The gateway to God is through repentance, and this should happen continuously. Continuously. Because it does not matter what is happening around us, good or bad, we should repent. Because, again, this repent is not like this, like, I'm going to just beat myself up all the time. No, that's not repentance. If we see something good, and, and the Bible shows us, or do we presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? So when we see the good things, then we should rejoice. Because we don't deserve them. But if you have a theology that God does, you know, he... He owes me a good life. Well, then we don't even see the good things as as gracious gifts from God. So repentance, again, is a good thing. So when we have good things come into our lives, we should see them as those things we certainly don't deserve because of our sin and repent. Remember, God does not owe you a comfortable life. That does not mean that we walk around like Eeyore or putting ourselves down all the time. No. You're a child of God. There is no condemnation for your sin. Just the opposite. Because when we see our sin and repent, we remind ourselves of the gospel, which leads us to rejoice. Maybe you're here today and you feel far from God. Well, Maybe you need to repent more often so that you remind yourself of the gospel more often and then you can rejoice more often. Jesus says, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Jesus closes out this teaching by telling us that God is committed to uh, saving you from what you deserve. He's committed to it. Luke 13, 6 through 9 says this, And he told this parable, A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit in this fig tree and find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. In the parable, we have a man who owns a fig tree, and that fig tree deserves to be cut down. The caretaker is so compassionate. The caretaker is committing to getting fruit out of the fig tree and avoiding having cutting it down. The caretaker begs and says, oh, give me another chance. I will dig around it. I will fertilize it. I will irrigate it. I will get fruit out of it. So what is the tree? It's not really hard to see. It's us. What's the fruit? It's the love for God and repentance. What is the caretaker? Who is the one saying, I know they deserve to be cut down. I don't want to give them what they deserve. I want to bring them to repentance because if they can repent, then they won't get what they deserve. I want to save them from what they deserve. Who is that? It's Jesus. 
It's Jesus. As he's teaching these people and he's looking directly at his time going to the cross to die for sins. He's trying to cultivate their hearts to to see the signs of the time, to repent because judgment is coming, to see who he truly is. Do we today see who he truly is? Jesus goes to the Father and says, I will run the race. I will endure the cross. I will despise the shame. I will pay for it. So that when my brothers and sisters repent, you can give them my robe of righteousness. My robe of righteousness. So therefore, that we can stand before the Father, not on our works, not on our merits, but because of what Christ has done in our place. How do you know whether you've repented? See, you've seen both sides, that you're a wicked sinner and that you're cherished and loved. That's repentance. We've seen both sides. It's those two things together that both humble you and build you up. The reason we still have time to repent is that God is so patient with us. He is so patient with us. We have not yet perished, not because we are any better than anyone else, but because God is long in showing us mercy. Even now, like the vine dresser in the parable, Jesus is interceding for our salvation. Matthew Henry said, had it not been for Christ's intercession, the whole world had been cut down. But by the mercy of Christ, we are still standing, and we still have time to believe the gospel and repent of our sin. Will you believe the gospel and repent today? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, Lord. Yes, I I know that this last three or four weeks of Jesus' teaching has, has been hard teaching, but Lord, you're so gracious to us. You love us so dearly. Because all this teaching is, is warning these disciples and those around them, I'm going to the cross, and we're on the other side of the cross, so we get to look back and see all that you have done for us. And that there's no condemnation for our sin, but as long as we repent and trust in you. Will you help us through the Spirit convicting us, showing us our sin, so we may go to you and then be reminded of what Christ has done to cover that sin? And Lord, we don't understand that process in our minds, but Lord, this is your process. This is how you're building us up to be more like Christ. It works every time. Lord, I just pray if there's anybody here today that you've given them ears to hear and eyes to see who you are. Lord, that they may see the gravity of their sin and Lord, that they would cry out to you and ask for salvation. And for those of us who have been walking and understand this path of repentance daily, Lord, give us the strength to continue. Know that the hope we have is one day the presence of sin will be gone. Lord, that we will step in to the new heavens and new earth without any sin. 
And that will be a glorious day. That is the wonderful life that you have promised us. Lord, help us run the race well. Help us help our brothers and sisters to run the race well. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Mountain City Church. To learn more about our church, visit our website at mountaincty.church. Thanks again, and may the Lord bless your week.